tell me you're having second thoughts. You don't want me to have to worry about you. I need to know what's going on. It's not safe. I wish it were. Oh, how I wish. How I wish. I think about you a lot, Elliot. I think about that night. When we became gods. That night. I want to know what happened. Hello, friend. Welcome to Hello, Friend. This is a podcast all about the show, Mr. Robot. This is a review of season two, episode three of Mr. Robot called Colonel Panic.ksd, written and directed by Sam Esmail. Henry, what did you think of this episode? Definitely a Colonel Panic. Like, I felt a little <laughs> bit like my brain exploded at certain points this episode, especially in that uh, literally stomach turning scene involving Elliot and some Adderall pills. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've had enough of Elliot in the cuckoo nest to last me the rest of the season. I want to move on and get more action and capers happening, I think. Yeah, it's spending time in Elliot's head isn't fun for himself or for us. No. And of course, Colonel Panic, the title, it definitely, that would make a kind of a cool name. Hi, I'm Colonel Panic. But this is from Mr. Robot Wikia, but you can find this information anywhere. A Colonel Panic occurs when a Unix operating system detects a fatal error from which it cannot recover. It is similar to the blue screen of death in Windows, which thankfully I haven't experienced in a long time because I have a Mac. I did love all the opening scenes around Coney Island, which is a totally awesome and creepy place with Romero and Mobley. Where we learn a little bit about the haunted nature of what kind of becomes a visual punchline for the episode. I love that. I love the fact that the show deals a lot with how a place can become layered with different meanings and stories when they first showed how the Mr. Robot store transmorphed into different shops until it became an evil core bank. And the same thing with the F Society headquarters, we get to learn it's an unlucky spot filled with murder and misery. Yeah. And if we want to get a little bit meta about it, it's kind of also symbolic for how uh, our economic, financial and political systems evolve, where they start off as one thing and they end up becoming something very different from what was originally intended. And even when they try to harken back to what they once were, they're permutations of what it was. So even in the story that Romero was telling Mobley, when the location was first an old school arcade, and then in the year 2000, it was a retro harkening back to the arcade, but it wasn't the same. And we see this a lot in the tech world also, right? Like this idea that you... Even though that certain things should be timeless on these digital platforms, they're not. Like you can't roll back an operating system very easily because all of your applications are different versions and they don't work well. And by the same token, like in gaming and mobile gaming, especially, we see all these titles that want to look retro. Like we tried so hard to get to beyond 16 bit in gaming into 24 bit into photorealism. And now we're trying to make games that look deliberately pixelated. I think you're probably thinking maybe of a game like Minecraft, right? Even one of the most successful games in all of history has such an old school look and feel to it. It's, it's like Legos. It's, you know, this really sort of modern toy in some senses, but really 
very basic and simple. If you go to Coney Island, and I know I go on about it because I've only ever been there once, it left such an impression. It really is a layering of the old and new. So there's Nathan Hot Dogs, those old, ancient, decrepit rides, freaky clown faces. And then there are lots of new things there. And it's got so much history. One thing I noticed about all the people who died in the various incarnations of the F Society headquarters, a lot of stuff happened to their heads. The one dad got shot in the face. The woman got stabbed through the neck with a pool stick. And all these accidents where they're almost like short stories where they kind of end with a bit of a twist or some sense of irony. Did you you pick up on that also? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to elaborate? I I saw some of that too. It just makes me uh, think about the kind of poetic nature and the symbolism that is in that spot and like how they're kind of embracing it, the way that they call themselves uh, what appears on the outside of the building and they just kind of embrace the history. It's it's interesting to me. Yeah, and I love that Robero went into great detail about this really untoward history of people being awful to each other and and falling upon the worst luck imaginable. But he wants to hold back telling Mowgli what happened to the UNN in fun society. (laughs) (laughs) And and so where do you, and so given the nature of these kind of tragic and somewhat ironic deaths, he himself becomes a victim later on. And so where's the twist there? Like, does his mother kill him? Like, did the gun fall out of the sky and bounce off his pot plant and shoot him in the head? Like, what happened? So you're raising a really excellent point. Romero, a.k.a. Jerome, right, basically is shot in the head and murdered. And again, another person shot in the head or has something with their head. And who did that? Darlene's colleague, Mobley, thinks it's the Dark Army, but it just, is it Elliot? <laughs> he, he had threatened him before in one of the prior episodes, right? Because when Mr. Robot went to him and said, you're going to help, and he had said, no, I'm just going to sell drugs, that's fine. In season one, he pulled out a gun and pointed at him, right? And that was really Elliot. It seems to me that Elliot is the only one we know of who was seen with a gun. Not that they aren't obviously ubiquitous on some level, but it it did cross my mind that it was Elliot or or Tyrell, maybe. So uh, just before we leave the topic of Coney Island, I realized listening to you speak about Coney Island that you speak about Coney Island the way that some Christians speak about Jerusalem. (laughs) 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 <laughs> it's such it's so layered in history and symbolism <laughs> and meaning the sights the sounds the smells it's like walking backwards in time <laughs> yeah the the glittering broken glass on the beachfront <laughs> tells you that the shimmering spirit is alive there i have always idealized coney island and the one time i got there it was packed with people and people were walking around with concealed containers of really weird booze and it was 12 o'clock in the afternoon (laughs) it was a tough place you definitely would want to not tick anybody off Elliot is overcome with panic attacks the one thing that brings on those panic attacks is him dealing with Tyrell what is it about Tyrell that undoes Elliot so much I'm not sure I mean that's an interesting question because all the way back to episode uh, season one he Tyrell invokes a lot of anxiety in Elliot 
And I think part of that is that Terrell in some ways threatens Elliot because he shares some of Elliot's qualities. Like we've seen that he knows his way around a hack or two. Um, and he's technical. Um, but at the same time, he has certain qualities that Elliot does not. He's social. He's kind of slick. He's uh, socially scheming. Um, and he's uh, successful by a lot of other external markers. And so I think in that way, he makes Elliot uncomfortable because he's not someone that Elliot can just say is in that other tribe. In some ways, they're of the same tribe. They really are. And just hearing the grossness with which Terrell said to Elliot, he keeps thinking about the night when we became gods. It was so gross when he said that, I thought. I agree. It was, uh, it's it's kind of a, a sign of how he considers himself one of the masters of the universe, right? Like that's a phrase that comes up in the in this episode also is like this master of the universe theme. That's a great point. And I also think that it was telling in this scene that first of all, Mr. Robot was the one who set up the call with Tyrell. So what does that mean? And Mr. Robot can hear when Elliot is talking to us, the viewer. What does that mean? So many things that you can literally just debate in your head for days and in the end of it none of it's completely reliable because it's all being filtered through an unreliable narrator yeah and of course all of these ponderings get interrupted because this is where elliot coincidentally on television finds out gideon is dead just just perfect timing for that news to break in psychotic serendipity (laughs) and then we find out ray was talking to his dead wife while he was on his kidney dialysis that was pretty intense to watch and then you do find out that people are on an allowance of 50 dollars a day yeah i caught that too i was kind of surprised at that detail being kind of slipped under the radar. Yeah, what did you think of that? Um, Could you live on $50 cash a day? I actually read a newspaper article online because there's no such thing practically as newspaper anymore uh, about a woman who was had to live on $50 for a week of food and she talked about how she had to go hungry and she would go out with friends and she would have to order water while they were getting regular drinks because she wanted to still keep up her social life I guess and but it would be hard to know that's what your allowance is but that taps into a lot of discussions around guaranteed wages yeah and uh guaranteed basic income and these experiments that people are doing because and it, it doesn't touch on this right now but there is a associated theme of automation destroying our jobs and the role of human beings in an age where machines are doing most of our work and thinking for us. The cosmology of Mr. Robot is something I wonder I wondered a lot about in this episode because on the one hand, there's a lot of different themes or elements being brought into this, but at sometimes at some points it can feel like there's just everything. Like there's just a lot of these things pulled from the dark parts of the internet all kind of just thrown into this soup of a plot. Uh, sometimes it walks that line for me. I agree. Sometimes it does walk that line for me. It's starting to feel like it's very conscious of itself. And I think you're right. Like they're definitely taking everything they can find and mixing it up into one big Mr. Robot soup. It doesn't help that the narrator is also insane and his mind is kind of going through its own blending. What you said earlier about the scenes with Mr. Robot and Elliot, where Elliot was downing all that Adderall and 
was completely blaming Mr. Roboff for all of his troubles, for his internal fatal error. What do you think that's going to accomplish exactly? It's not morphine. It's Adderall. This is your fault. All of it. Now it's time to get rid of you. The scenes of the men in black pouring cement down his throat, it was so awful. Was that Elliot in an, in an institution and he was just uh, hallucinating? Oh, that's interesting because I took it to be that he was hallucinating the abduction and when he was uh, seeing this concrete being poured down his throat, it was really him sticking his hand down his throat to get the Adderall out. It could be any of those things. It was very masterfully done. It was super gross. That was completely disgusting. I don't need to ever see that scene again. No, I did appreciate the Philip Glass soundtrack. I do love Philip Glass, so that was pretty fun. But it was so unpleasant to see the whole drug fugue that Elliot was in. I, I definitely thought the scenes involving uh, Angela and Philip Price were kind of more interesting. Either, yeah, and there's this weird sort of Pygmalion thing going on, like I mentioned before, where like, what's, what's going to happen to our little Miss Eliza Doolittle? Yeah, I love all of Philip Price's World War One era posters in German on his wall. It's so bizarre. One of the posters when Angela first enters the room is called Humorous Maps of Europe from the year 1914. And it has all these caricatures of all the different countries. And then the one that Angela keeps staring at is the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. And, and again, this kind of idea that we are on the verge of world chaos. Yeah. And I mean, and frankly, the fact that, that the posters are written in that German Fraktura print and they're from the year 1914, it makes you wonder whose side, quote unquote, Philip is on. Is there a kind of Aryan conspiracy at work? Because it kind of there's been some scenes where it's made me wonder, like, is there some sort of fascist, like, neo-Nazi thing going on with Terrell and his Aryan, you know, ubermensch kind of uh, feel? It makes me wonder, like, and with these maps, paraphernalia, it makes me wonder. I definitely started wondering about that at this point myself. He could be a Nazi of some kind, for sure. You just don't know. And then Angela at dinner, her whole process of getting ready for dinner, she almost seems like she's in this dream state. And by the end of dinner, of course, she's completely confused because basically Philip Price handed her what all the information she needed to bring those guys down. And so given that, completely disarms her and us and makes us wonder, so what's the end game here? What's going on? Do you have any theories at this point? I, I, again, I feel like they're trying to build her trust. They're trying to kind of bring her in. It's like kind of like the classic protocol for conditioning and brainwashing someone is you, you give them responsibility, you give them praise for their performance, you start to make them feel like they are being accepted into your group, and that in doing so, they are being shunned by their old social ties. It's like this very classic form of brainwashing. It definitely seems to be the case. We'll find out what their angle is. Some people are theorizing it's going to be Darlene versus Angela in some epic battle throwdown. <laughs> in some epic ballet dance-off. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. 
<laughs> and then, of course, you talked about Dominique has a smart home. She's really into her Alexa for all of her needs. Yeah, she 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 asks a deep late night questions. You know, when will the world end? <laughs> What's going on with Ray? So I guess he's got a rough side to him as well. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> Ray the Bitcoin gangsta, right? <laughs> and so it's like. Did he steal this? Like, what's going on? Like, what? why exactly is he trying to do this? And how does that involve his relationship with Elliot? Like, it gives us reason to doubt his pure intentions. Yeah, or he's somebody who is just really good at compartmentalizing. It will be interesting to see how Ray evolves. I wonder if Ray will ever present a competition to Mr. Robot in terms of having an effect on Elliot's loyalty and thinking. Ooh, that would be interesting, like a, a challenge to the hegemony of Mr. Robot in Elliot's mind. Yeah, because Ray has sort of a fatherly vibe towards Elliot. It's interesting. Uh, I, I Have you seen the show Marco Polo on Netflix? I've seen bits and pieces of it. So I just finished watching season two, and there is a character where there's a, a, a strong plot story arc around an imaginary character that basically there's a character who is going, who's insane and believes that there's this other character plotting against her, but that other character only exists in her imagination. And so while watching this and then watching Mr. Robot, I couldn't help but be struck by some of the parallels in the way that they uh, use these imaginary characters in both of the shows. And so this idea of, again, the psychotic serendipity. Sometimes you just need to let the universe work itself out for you. Oh, if only it were that easy. But there's a reason why I say psychotic serendipity, because when someone's in a psychotic state, which Elliot is at several times in this episode, there are things that happen that are coincidental that take on universal significance, that you feel like the universe is trying to communicate with you through these acts of serendipity. Like, from a union uh, sense, when they talk about synchronicity, that these synchronicities happen because you're somehow on this blessed path and the universe is trying to tell you something. I think that's really very observant of you to say that. And now that you've explained it, it, it really is this ride that we're on with Elliot where when you are in those states that he's often finding himself in, you do think that everything is a sign or things fit together in ways. And in a lot of ways, that's what people criticize so-called conspiracy theorists of doing as well, that they're always trying to make a cohesive story out of disparate things and events. Yeah, and you know, people talk about the dangers of pattern recognition and that and the way that we as humans are uniquely wired to do pattern recognition, that sometimes that can distort our perspective on things. And a lot of what Elliot's character does in the show is really different forms of pattern recognition, where he needs to detect a pattern such that he can fill in the missing gaps and deduce the overall larger picture, uh, either to like compromise a framework or to guess a password or to put the behavioral pieces together to form a larger overall picture of who someone is. I mean, that is pretty much how Elliot, as you're saying, survives. And we'll see how much these patterns, real and imagined, unfold in subsequent episodes. I'm so excited that 
you uh, were here to talk about Mr. Robot with me. Henry, did you want to mention anything else about this episode or where you think things are going? Uh, I think now that the dots have been connected with this one FBI agent back to the headquarters of F Society, the clock is really ticking to see like the compromise of the gang's headquarters, right? That's always this kind of fundamental pivot point on any good versus bad guy arc is the discovery of the superhero's lair. And at that moment, it's just a matter of when there's going to be that epic showdown to save uh, the lair. Because at this point, they can't make her forget where they are. So either they destroy her, kill her, or they give that spot up. It's like discovering the Batcave. Exactly. Like how many, how many uh, like episodes or comic books have been devoted to someone finding uh, Superman's like, you know, Fortress of Solitude or, you know, someone compromising the bad cave. There's what well, has a, a home or a lair. There's always that plot device that gets brought up. Even in Superman with Lex Superman. Luthor. Dwelling. The Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, it's the Fortress of Solitude. It's uh-huh. a very, uh, it's a common plot device. And so I'm curious to see how it's used here. Like the writers of the show are using certain um, thematic themes or let's say narrative devices that are actually quite old. Like in Japanese literature, they employ this technique of misconnections between lovers as a dramatic device to keep narrative tension going. Um, and then you have uh, this as well. Um, so uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they weave all these things together as the season goes on. Well, this is a lot of fun, Henry. Thanks so much for chatting this week about Mr. Robot. Uh, great talking with you, Margaret. Looking forward to the next one. Yeah, and I want to thank everybody who's been listening and subscribing and rating on iTunes or Stitcher or chatting us up on our Facebook page at Hello Friend. So definitely thanks for that. And I look forward to talking to you, Henry, really soon. Thanks, Margaret. Alexa, when is the end of the world? Unless it collides with a very large rock or a future technology goes very wrong indeed, Earth is most likely to be destroyed when the sun swells into a red giant in several billion years' time.